first one from Genesis 3.1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? John 18, 1 through 3. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of the soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And this is Revelation 15, 2 to 4. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given to them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Thanks to you. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can grab your seats. Let's pray. Only you, Holy Spirit, can transform hearts. You can make us like children. Lord, we are in the midst of a real war. And in this war, we are called to resist. We're called to overcome, but not in our own strength. In the strength and in the wisdom that you give us. In the power that you anoint us with through the resurrection. There are real creatures outside of our ability to see that are set on destroying us. And sin, Lord, though impersonal, is a power that is constant at work in our being. In these sessions on sin, we pray to be self-aware, humble, and loved. It's hard to hear who and what we are because of sin. Help us, Father, to be transformed by your love, to become more fully ourselves, more truly ourselves in Jesus, more fully human. Commune with our souls now in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. So ever since I was a little kid, I seem to have had this connection with all sorts of animals. Now, I'm going to say the following with the slightest of pride, just a little bit of hubris, but I consider myself somewhat of an animal whisperer, a, a beast tamer, if you will. So my family, they will vouch for this knack of mine. I'll see a dog, and as soon as I see this little dog, it's like we just have this connection. It's like I know what the little dog is thinking. I, I even have like a little voice with which I channel the dog's thoughts out to the listening human world. Now, don't ask me to do it. It's a gift. It's not a circus trick. I take this very seriously. Far and few between have been the beasts that have been able to resist my relational charms. But I want to say with the utmost of gravity this morning that the ones that have been able to overcome my mastery, well, these beasts not only inflicted great harm to my ego, but to my physical person. Let me give you a few examples. 
there was my grandmother's dog, Sparky. Now, Sparky was this toothless, hairless, mostly blind byproduct of humans mixing small breeds in the pursuit of cuteness and instead getting this repulsive little monster. It was 100,000 years old by the time I was born, and it just kept living and getting more and more mean and more and more grumpy with every passing year. So try as I may to get Sparky's belly under my hand for a good rub, as my grandmother so easily did, I was always rejected with snarls and snaps and bites at my hand. There was this little water snake turned ravenous leviathan that tried to eat my finger off during the now infamous Braga family camping trip of 1984 at Warswick Hot Springs. There were the baby calves, these little baby cows on Dave Hilt's dairy, where I had taken a job upon entering junior high. Now, I know for most of you urbanites, the idea of a big brown-eyed baby cow being menacing just doesn't make any sense. But for those of us raised out on the hills and dales of rural America, well, we know how dangerous livestock can be, and especially the babies. I had tied off one particular, I cleaned calf pins that I was doing. It was disgusting. I'd cleaned off, I had cleaned off this calf pin. I had this calf tied off with a rope and the calf escaped with the rope in hand and I grabbed the end of the rope just in time for that thing to drag me clear across Dave Hilt's, Dave Hilt's dairy, looking back just occasionally with like menacing glee in its eyes, delighting in the fact that I could do nothing about how it was dragging me across this dairy. And then finally, there's one behemoth that stands out among all the rest, Trista Bingham's old bronc banjo. <laughs> I was raised in a small country town, but I was still a city boy through and through. Now, my friend Josh and I, we had been invited to go out and ride horses with Trista. And so Josh, wanting to impress Trista, decided that he did not need help saddling old banjo. So we took off riding, I on the back, Josh at rain, and the horse began to trot, and then suddenly this horse burst into full lightning speed gallop. And in that moment, Josh began screaming at the top of his lungs, stop kicking it in the flanks, stop kicking it in the flanks. I being utterly clueless as to the whereabouts of a horse's flanks, squeezed my legs harder around what I thought was its waist, which turned out to be its flanks. And that thing began to buck like crazy. Josh's saddle job in that moment went completely sideways. I just remember seeing Josh go like this, try to hang on sideways, get bucked off onto the ground, and left me to ride the beast onto glory, which, of course, I didn't. That thing launched me 30 feet through the air, landing me in a disheveled, defeated heap in Trista Bingham's cornfield. So there you have it. The dangers and defeats of a failed animal whisperer, of a beast tamer, if you will. All right. Silly, silly stories. There is a, a sobering and a very serious note to these stories as we begin this morning our second session on the cross and the nature of our need for it. And here's why. As we explore the biblical metaphors and the symbols and the imagery used to depict evil powers that oppose God and humans, what we see throughout the biblical narrative are beasts and behemoths, lions and leviathons, dragons, dogs, bulls, and snakes. And these things all symbolize sin. In the imagination of the biblical authors, sin is a beast to be tamed. And if it isn't, well, then that beast will do more damage than just our frail egos. It literally destroys our very lives. And so the, the opening pages of the Bible, they describe this idyllic state between humans and animals. In fact, the ideal in Genesis 1 through 2 is that no life is going to keep its life by the taking of another life. It's kind of like a vegans for the Bible when thing going on there. Everything in Genesis 1 and 2 
existed in perfect harmony. And the primary differentiation between humans and animals was this designation of the humans as image bearers. These image bearers were called to reflect, to rule, to tend to creation and to each other, all as worshiping royal priests in the cosmos. We looked at this in depth last Sunday. It will be important that you stay on track with these teachings. They're going to pile up one upon another until we reach the end at the resurrection months from now. There's a very unique facet this morning of this image-bearing royal priestly vocation, as we called it last week, that we need to emphasize. And it has to do with our ability as humans to be self-aware, and it has to do with our intelligence. We have intelligence to the degree, to a capacity that no other species on this planet possesses. Now, evolutionary theorists tell us that the reason the human species is the most dominant on this planet is because of the miracle that is the neofrontal cortex of our brains. That's this huge front part of our brain that acts like a break on the more instinctual animalistic parts of our brain deep in there, the amygdala, all these areas that just light off the triggers in our bodies. In other words, because of this miracle, the neofrontal cortex, we can pause, we can assess, we can reflect, we can plan, we can strategize, we can future cast, and we make all of these decisions in the context of self-awareness in relationship to our external and our internal environment. Theologically speaking, this image-bearing or this royal priestly capacity it is the nature of self-consciousness and radical, uncomparable intelligence in contrast to all other life on this planet. Humans are not driven by only instinctual reactions. We are not driven by unconscious behavior patterns. And it is this capacity to think, to assess, to pause, to plan, to futurecast, to decide, and to do all of these things in relationship to other humans and primarily in relationship to our creator, to God, that makes us truly human. And it's also our greatest test. In the biblical imagination, every single human must consciously decide with their intelligence, with their self-consciousness, they must decide to relationally trust God they must decide to worship God. They must decide to obey their creator or, unlike the animals, not. And so as we come to Genesis chapter 3, we are introduced to a mysterious enemy of God. And we're going to spend time in Genesis chapter 3 over the next couple months. The Nahash, the Hebrew word, translated the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? So this creature, this snake, apparently was more than your run-of-the-mill garden snake, beginning with the fact that it talked. It talked. Guys, the ancient Hebrews believed the exact same things that you and I do about snakes, namely that they don't talk unless they're in the presence of Voldemort or Harry Potter but for us muggles, snakes don't talk. And so this creature was more than just a snake. Theories abound as to the full nature of what this snake, the serpent, was, and we'll explore that in coming weeks. Suffice it to say, the snake was against God and against humans. 
The snake, the serpent, this creature, it raised doubts. It challenged, it isolated, it separated, it accused, it lied. This creature made every crafty effort to remove humans from their rightful place as image-bearing, ruling, royal, worshiping priests. And it succeeded. Rather than resisting the evil beast, Adam and Eve decided to follow its counsel. And the moment they did, there was this horrific reversal of God's will in the world. The humans designed to rule over creation and rule over the creatures in partnership with God suddenly became, in this horrific reversal, the ruled. The beast, this enemy of God, took the place of power and authority. And what we see throughout human history right up to today are the repercussions of this catastrophic reversal. Humanity is not over the world it inhabits, but humanity is under the curse of sin, enslaved to these beastly powers that devour it. And so in a most tragic irony, human attempts to become like God on the counsel of the serpent resulted in humans becoming more like animals. So the very next scene, following up Genesis 3 and Genesis chapter 4, is this enigmatic story of two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, they're still operating like royal priests. The first thing we see them doing is bringing to God sacrifices. We don't know why specifically, but God for some reason favors Abel's sacrifice above Cain's. Cain's response, his unmet expectations, his envy causes him to rage. And God comes to Cain and warns him in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 4. Sin is crouching at your door, Cain. It desires to have you, but you must tame it. Rule this beast, Cain. And what's happening here is a repeat of Genesis 3. As Adam and Eve submitted to the snake in that catastrophic reversal, here in Genesis 4, sin is pictured as this crouching animal, and it ended up ruling Cain. It took over Cain. It devoured his sense of empathy. It took away his sense of conscience and ultimately his humanness. And in animalistic rage, he took the life of his own brother, another human, to build up his own. Disharmony began to spread. What these biblical stories are saying to us, friends, is that at its core, sin is a loss of vocation. That's last Sunday. But sin also dehumanizes us. To not resist the temptations of the beast is to have our humanness devoured by it, malformed, misshaped, destroyed. Nowhere is this more clear than in the prophet Daniel. I love the book of Daniel. It is a crazy dream trip. It's nuts. The book of Daniel is full of terrifying beasts over and over. And these beasts, they all represent the cruel and power-hungry kingdoms of humans. So in the book of Daniel, you have rams and goats bashing in, into each other, breaking horns off of each other. In this kind of like biblical Godzilla versus Mothra vision, Daniel, Daniel dreams of like eagle-winged lions and leopards and bears with cracked bones in their mouths, all the kingdoms of men literally devouring one another. And one of the kings of those kingdoms literally lost his mind, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. 
We read in Daniel, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, this is Nebuchadnezzar, he said, now listen to his words. Listen to his lack of acknowledgement of God. Listen to this radical reversal of the mark of the beast in this man's life. Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty, man trying to become God? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven, the words of God. This is what's decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. There's a modern clinical diagnosis for what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. It's a condition called boanthropy. Boanthropy. It's a legit mental condition, and it causes people to believe that they've become an animal, most often a cow in particular. There's actually even some kind of vague archaeological evidence that describes a Babylonian king that lost his mind in just this way. Now, I can already hear you sitting there as a modern San Diegan urbanite. Great, Dan. Brothers murdering each other, tyrant kings going crazy, acting like cows. What does this actually have to do with me and my struggles and Monday morning? Friends, that is a very common response to the biblical narrative on sin as a beast. In summary, what we begin to say when we begin to discover the nature of beastly sin is we say, well, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a tyrant dictator. Yes, yes, I have definitely got some stuff going on inside of me that I'd rather people not know about, but I'm not Hitler, right? The tragic and the terrifying and the hard-to-hear nature of the biblical nature of the reversal is that even the most insignificant marks of the beast in our lives are dehumanizing us in infinitesimal and eventually catastrophic ways. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus, he understood this, and he warned all of us as his followers in the Sermon on the Mount, he would say, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a tyrant king. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, fool, idiot, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus knew and understood that the impatient outbursts that we have on I-5 and those impulsive, angry moments where we just cast judgment on another image bearer, Jesus knew and warned us those are losses of our humanness at the very heart level, at the very seat of what it is to be human in our truest place. Those seemingly insignificant moments are dehumanizing our hearts. Verses 27 and 28 of Matthew 5. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
And so for Jesus, that so-called innocent second glance in the name of objectifying another was actually a rejection of our royal priestly responsibility to protect and care for the other from the heart, from the deepest places within our innermost being. Lust, of all types, not only sexual, turns the human heart designed to love and to give into an animal driven by instinctual desire at cost to the others. Friends, please hear this. This is why the moral code of Jesus, the moral commands of Jesus, this is why they amount to more than merely don't drink too much, don't smoke pot, don't have sex outside of marriage, and don't watch R-rated movies. What Jesus was warning us of was that sin in its many hidden forms crouches at the door of our hearts and it desires to dehumanize and devour us. And so when we do not resist sin, be that anger or lust or greed, Jesus in a merciful word of warning was saying, let not your heart be lost. Don't let your heart be dehumanized. These things are making you less than who I intended you to actually be. And true joy, true flourishing that you're pursuing in this sin as the snake has lied to you is only to be found in fully being formed by my spirit as a true human. Does that all make sense? Is that giving you a big picture of what sin is? It's more than just checking off moral boxes of obedience or disobedience. It's about being human or less human. And the more that we humans resist our design, at the very nature of being human is the design to trust and obey God, period. The more that we do not trust God and we don't yield to God, but we yield to sin, the more intense our beastly behavior becomes. So if you follow the story arc of the Bible from Genesis 3 all the way to the book of Revelation, what you see is this cyclical pattern of humanity cycling through greater and greater rejections of God and literally spiraling out into chaos. Over and over, these cycles of becoming less and less controlled, less and less civilized as sin is yielded to. So as you story arc through the Bible, what you see is sexual desire and behavior goes completely awry, and it leads, it ends in these horrific scenes of rape and sexual abuse. The book of Judges is gnarly on this front. Murder, violence, greed, injustice, slavery, oppression, war. The biblical account of humanity is this, it's a cycle of like a theological Darwin survival of the fittest. Strong, eating the weak, catastrophe. And so the great rabbis, in particular, the church planter, the Apostle Paul, he was soaked in these stories and these texts, and he discerned these patterns throughout the Old Testament narratives. And as he planted churches across Asia Minor, he knew those patterns were pointing forward to what would be for the present moment in humanity. And so he warned the New Testament communities scattered throughout Asia Minor, saying, look, this spiraling cycle of humanity rejecting God and not resisting sin, it will increase in intensity until the return of Jesus. And so to his young protege, Timothy, he wrote, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. We may be in them right now. We don't know. People will be, just tell me if this sounds like today. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, 
brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So Rabbi Paul presents these patterns to the modern New Testament people of God saying, look, humanity will continue when it resists God to be driven by instinct instead of love and self-control. And friends, here in the West, we are seeing these cycles start to boil up to the surface of our society. Let me give you a few examples. The American experiment of democratic civility and respectful public discourse is in a tailspin. On January 6, 2021, for the first time in American history, the peaceful passing of power was usurped by an angry mob storming the Capitol, one of whom was dressed as no less than an animal. Behold, bison man. Social media has unleashed raging packs of unchecked, clawing, biting language. What computer screens and Twitter does is it puts human-to-human -human connection at a distance. And it allows us to dehumanize the other and release our more animalistic inclinations without any sort of restraint. Bullying, I was a youth pastor for seven years and I never saw any of what I'm seeing now. Bullying and cruelty has sent teen suicide rates through the roof. Names like Bill Cosby, once associated with wholesome family style entertainment, have now been exposed as literal sexual beasts. And the list of names over these last five years associated with sexual harassment and sexual malpractice is virtually innumerable at this point. The rise of rape culture, fueled by ever-increasingly aggressive forms of pornography, and the multi-billion dollar sex slave trade industry. These are the marks of men and women in some cases denying their God-given dignity and devolving into abusive creatures driven by this insatiable lust at cost to the other. I don't know how many of you know this, 2020 was a real ringer of a year. And in that same year, murder spiked more than 27%, and 2021 did not see the murder rate decline in any sense. Violent crime in cities like ours is at an all-time high. And of course, everybody's pointing the finger at things like the mantra, defund the police mantras, or COVID quarantine effects, or just kind of the general social rage of a culture reacting to injustices in violent ways. But fundamentally, theologically, the people of God look at our world and we say, Sin is dehumanizing us and driving all of this. And yet, we turn a corner here in this Sermon on Sin, finally. And yet, God's gentle mercy, God's kindness, God's goodness, God's love, God's wisdom, God's grace, it remains steadfast over this reversal catastrophe, and he never lets humanity spiral out as far as we could. We are never as bad as we could get apart from God's grace, shielding us, guiding us, guarding us, and going before us always. Let me give you an example of this, and it's a nasty one. This past week, I don't know how many of you guys have kept up on this, venture capitalist and co-owner of the Golden State Warriors. He's a Sri Lankan transplant, American citizen, super, super rich billionaire guy. His name is Chamath Palyaptya. He found himself in huge trouble culturally because he kind of crossed over that human beast behavior line with some stuff that he said. He was in an interview with uh, a podcast talking about how Joe Biden has probably hurt himself in the polls recently because Biden continues to show real concern for human rights travesties. In particular, Biden keeps bringing up the Chinese government's treatment of the Uyghur people. The Uyghurs are a fringe Muslim community in the People's Republic of China that have been horrifically oppressed by the hand of the regime despite 
clear and obvious imprisonment of this community, rapes, forced sterilization of the women, disappearance, and in general, genocide of the Uyghur people at the hands of the Chinese regime, Palyapta in this interview said to the interviewer, let's be honest, nobody cares about what's happening to the Uyghurs. You, speaking to the interviewer, said, you bring it up because you really care. And I, I think that's nice that you care. The rest of us don't care. I'm telling you a very hard, ugly truth. Of all the things that I care about, this is below my line. That's a direct quote. In the same tone of voice, I watched the interview. Now he goes on in the rest of the interview because of course the interviewers are aghast and they begin to press back on him and, and he begins to say, well, look, what I'm saying is we shouldn't care about what's going on in China because you know we have enough of our own injustices happening here in the States to even start to give a nod to what's going on in China. And I, and I will say over the past three or four days, he has been backpedaling as fast as he can on all these statements via social media. But listen, his brutish comment, his animalistic lack of care for other humans, it has sparked a backlash that Polyopta is unlikely to recover from publicly. And we need to ask the question, why? Why? It's because we're not animals. We're not. Again, remember, we are first humans. We are first image bearers. We are first dignified, honored, and beautiful, and conscious, and self-aware, and decision-making people. And so, because we were created to care for and tend to one another, our humanness and our image-bearing royal priestliness, our dignity, our, our, all of it, our decision-making ability, everything that we are, never ceases. And it works like a break, just continually slowing our behaviors as an act of God's saving grace for all peoples. This humanness, this image-bearing reality, it's our design, and it cannot be fully denied. And God's whole goal, friends, for you and I this morning, for all of the world, is to restore us to fullness of humanity with no marks of the beast within at all. As we read through the stories of the Bible, what we see are glimpses of this reversal, this tragic reversal, being restored to right order. So right there in Genesis 3, right as the reversal is happening, God gives a promise as he's laying out the curse upon humanity and the snake himself. He gives this promise that one day a truly human descendant of Adam and Eve will come and the beast will not be able to tempt him or rule him. He will tame the serpent. He will crush the head of the snake forever. There's these other little obscure glimmers of hope that we see where harmony comes again into this broken world. For example, the animals with Noah submit to Noah as they get on the ark. All humanity and animals coming back together at the moment of salvation. Daniel, the very famous VeggieTales story, closes the mouths of the lions. He closes the mouths of the lions through faithfulness, through trust, through stillness. And so, too, in the prophets, we have these strange little promises that one day lions will be laying next to lambs, that children will be able to play next to the, ven of, to the dens of vipers without fear. And so from the promises of the prophets of these perfected, restored, harmonious realities, through the prayers for deliverance from the jaws of destruction, the Bible, the Bible aches, and the history of humanity cries out for the beast tamer for the perfect human to finally come. Jesus' favorite title for himself, do you know what it was in the Gospels? 
it wasn't Jesus Christ, and that wasn't his last name. That was actually a title. Jesus referred to himself, even when they called him the Christ, the Messiah, you're the coming king. Jesus would be like, no, I am the son of man, the son of man. Son of man is a heavily freighted term, and it's drawn from the prophet Ezekiel, and it's drawn from a particular chapter, chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. It could literally be translated son of Adam, son of Adama, son of Adam, son of humanity. Jesus' favorite term for himself was, I'm a son of humanity. And so Jesus arrived on the scene as the perfect human. And what we see happening with Jesus is now the new Adam has arrived, the son of Adam, the son of humanity. And he is tested and tempted by the beast at the very beginning of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give the accounts for us. Mark says, the shortened verse of it, verses 12 through 13, at once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan this accuser, this, this creature. And he was with the wild animals and angels attended to him. Did you guys catch that in verses 12 through 13? Mark makes sure to note that the wild animals were present with Jesus. Mark's giving a little nod here to the overarching biblical narrative of harmony between humans and animals again. And he's emphasizing that Jesus in this testing is launching a rehumanizing, reharmonizing project. And so in these scenes, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the temptation scenes, the snake, the satan, the accuser, this enemy, he uses the age-old tactics that he used on the first son of humanity, Adam. He attempts to keep control of this cosmic reversal and stay the ruler of all of creation. You could summarize the temptation accounts. Did God really say you're his son, Jesus? God's holding out on you, Jesus. You should do things your own way, Jesus. After all, you are the son of God. You could do miracles right now. Just worship me instead, the snake says to Jesus. And this new Adam, this true son of humanity, resists the creature. Jesus, having been prepared, we all assume, like a good little Jewish boy, by the spiritual practices of fasting and silence, solitude, scripture, meditation, time with community and prayer, prepared by all of these things as the son of humanity, he ruled the serpent by radically obeying and trusting his father. He recited the truth of God's word against the lies. And then the Jesus that we watch after the temptation accounts throughout the gospels, what we are watching is a human being being fully human in every way, from the heart, without any marks of the beast upon him at all. Jesus' perfect dependence and trust in God never wavers, a mark of fullness of humanity, untainted by the serpent's lies. Jesus never reacts out of instinct. He always departs, prays, seeks counsel, listens to the Holy Spirit and the scriptures, his community, and then decides in obedience. Jesus was always kind to the least of these, touching the untouchable, seeing the unseen, those are things that only humans have capacities for. And Jesus was never intimidated by the brutes who opposed him and were opposing others. And then finally, as the ultimate act of restoration to right order, Jesus allows the dogs, the beasts of spiraled out humanity to devour him so that he could recreate our humanity as a gift of grace and love. So we close where we began, John 18. We've 
traced our way all the way through the Bible, and we land back in verses 2 to 3, which he read for us. Judas, we know, filled with the snake. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. So here, Judas, the soldiers, the priests, look at them. Think about what they've become. They've spiraled out. They're like charging bulls that have lost their minds. They're like rabid dogs that can't do anything but seek to devour. They're like tearing lions going after Jesus in the garden. And you know what's so beautiful about the Bible? We can actually hear Jesus' prayers in this moment recorded in the Psalms. Psalm 22, verses 11 through 13, Jesus' prayer in this moment. Don't be far from me, Father. Trouble is near. There's no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. Later in Psalm 22, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and glow over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, don't be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. God would go on and deliver Jesus from the jaws of the beasts, but only after he took their full violence and ultimately, friends, our full violence into his very being. And so the snake crusher that was promised in Genesis 3, his heel would be bruised by the death of crucifixion as he took the full poison of the snake's bite into his very being. And it is this moment of devouring from Judas's surrounding him with the soldiers and priests all the way to the crucifixion. It is this moment of animalistic devouring of the son of humanity that restores our humanity what we see happening in the life of Jesus in the, lack, in the last parts of the gospel is we see what true love is and we see what true humanness is in Jesus' example of nonviolence and enemy love. And so we, his followers, say, I won't react as an animal would. I will react nonviolently with enemy love as he told me to do and as he did at the cross. Somehow, the New Testament authors believed, and so do we, that we receive the gift of fullness of humanity, a righteous life, Jesus's life. The moment we trust him and cry out to him and we say, you are my king, you are the model I follow, it's your behaviors, your beliefs that I build my life on, somehow supernaturally then we are recreated in our deepest places through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the New Testament authors tell us that all of the animalistic behaviors, every single moment where we've given into that impulse, where we've become little tyrannical Nebuchadnezzars, where we've let lust guide us or greed overtake us, all of those were devoured in Jesus' death. All of our animalistic behaviors were devoured in his death in our place. And our true humanness it resurrects from the grave every time we resist and choose to obey God, daily, daily. Friends, the very practices that Jesus used to tame the beast, he handed down to us and designed them to make us fully human. The practices that we're all engaging with this entire year, Sabbath, silence, solitude, fasting, 
prayer, scripture reading, community, feasting, mission, discipleship. These are the tools we employ to tame the beast of sin. And the practices, friends, of self-denial, the practice of a human self-denying, it further differentiates us from the beastly tendencies of animals. Restraint and rest, consideration and contemplation, it's these disciplines that form our humanness in the likeness of Jesus and strengthen us to resist our own temptation moments out in the wilds, surrounded by the beasts of a society that currently seems to be spiraling out. And most wonderfully, When we fail, which we will over and over and over, Jesus did not. Jesus launched and completed this grand rehumanization, reharmonizing project of God. And so through the cross, our loss of humanity is buried with Jesus, forgiven and forgotten. We receive that as a gift of faith. We are continually recreated as new creations. Paul actually calls us in the book of Ephesians a new humanity. The church is a new humanity by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so now, this week, this week, what do these stories of murderous brothers and kings acting like cows have to do with us? What do these stories of a peasant being crucified by the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago have to do with us? This week, we are the church going forth into the world as the new humanity, sons of Aram. Daughters of Eva, source of life, Eve. Truly human, filled with the Spirit, to follow the human ways of Jesus in enemy love, in servant-heartedness, in kindness, in empathy, in gentleness, in joy, in worship, in trust, in obedience to God. We now carry forth this grand rehumanizing, reharmonizing project until one day the cosmos will be fully put back in right order completely. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations, Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed.